Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. The information depicted in this podcast is purely for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle or routine. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Boost Your Biology podcast. My name is Lucas, and I'm the founder of Ergogenic Health. Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting-edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Welcome everyone to yet another episode of the Boost Your Biology podcast. Today I'm joined in with Cam Fraser, joining me in from Perth, actually another fellow Aussie, so it's good to connect. Um, Cam is a really interesting guy and he's got a very um, a strong grip on you know uh, men's sexual health and he's got a quite an interesting background. Um, so I've, I've, I've got a few notes here. He's Studied Western psychology, sexology, counseling, and psychotherapy uh, at several prominent American and Australian universities. Uh, he's a part of the World Association of Sex Coaches. He, he's a certified professional sex coach and an American College of Sexologists certified sexologist. So, Cam, welcome to the show, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on, brother. And thank you for that intro as well. Yeah. So, um, Cam, I want to just, yeah, understand you a little bit better and your background and your journey into where you are today. Sure, man. Sure. I, um, I, I get asked this question a lot and it, it's always slightly different every time I answer it, but I'll, I'll, I'll keep it brief because it's a, it's a pretty weird, long winding journey. Uh, and it all kind of started when I left home when I was 17. So I'm, I'm 27 now. So it was 10 years ago. Uh, and I moved from Perth, Western Australia to a place called Mount Vernon, Georgia, which is if people are familiar with, you know, the, 
continental America. It's you know, Georgia's in the Bible Bible Belt, the Deep South. Uh, it's a very religiously conservative state, um, Christian conservative. And I went to this university over there. That's the reason why I went to the States in the first place was to play soccer. So I was a competitive athlete and I was a student athlete at this university there. And I won't mention the university's name, but there's only one university in Mount Vernon. So if you look up that, you'll, you'll probably find it. Um, and the, uh, and so it was this little small rural town, which is like in the middle of right in the middle of smack bang in the middle of Georgia you know, Atlanta's inland and Savannah's on the coast and this little rural community, which I was playing soccer in, um, was, it was, a, it was an eye opener. I was, you know, I was, I was a, um, kind of a larrikin kind of Australian big drinker. I had, you know, long dreadlocks at the time as well. And, um, and was just partying. You know, it was just, was just causing ruckus in this like little conservative town that was like very, uh, so the tagline of the school was unapologetically Baptist. So it was very religious, you know, and it was, it was, we had to go to church um, every week, twice a week. And we had a, a, a swipe card. Every time we went to chapel, we had to swipe our student ID card in and log the amount of hours that we got. Um, you know, and if we didn't log the right amount of hours, then we wouldn't get our, our transcripts. We wouldn't be able to graduate. So it was like, you know, very indoctrinated. Mm. Um, and so because of that, the, um, I noticed a lot of things that were different about that community that were, that were different from, from my own community back in Perth, uh, back in Australia. And one of the biggest things I noticed was, um, was regarding sexuality, was, was the way that these young people, 17, 18, 19, and early 20s, um, people were interacting with one another and, and expressing their sexuality. So, you know, the, for example, there was like one class on human sexuality. I was studying psychology at the time. So we took a, um, took a class in human sexuality and it was Christian approaches to human sexuality was the title of the class. And so as you can imagine, there was a lot of like, uh, there's a a lack of education around contraception. There was a, um, a really strong belief in no premarital sex, no casual sex, sex is for procreation, not for pleasure. Um, you know, denouncing or disavowing any type of homosexuality or anything other than heteronormativity. So it was like, it was very restrictive. It was very, and not only restrictive, but very constrictive as well. Like it was that ideology and that way of um, thinking about sexuality was like enforced, you know, by the church, by the community, by your peers. Um, and so if you deviated from that in any way, you were like, you were, you, you were shunned, you were a bit of an outcast. And so I saw that way of like, layering this prescriptive way that you need to be sexual over these young people who are hormones are going through their body, right? They're wanting to explore, they're wanting to connect with each other, but then they've also got this shame and this guilt and this, this religious dogma that's dictating the way that they have, that they should express themselves. So I saw a lot of guys particularly, cause that's what I talk about now is men's work. So I saw a lot of guys, um, how do I say this? I'll, I'll put it bluntly, uh, exhibit stalker like behavior. You know, they, they didn't really know how to talk to people that they were attracted to. They didn't really know how to healthily express themselves um, sexually, how to, like, how to just name that they were feeling sexual and, and voice that in a healthy, appropriate way. So they did it in really inappropriate ways. There was a lot of, like, anonymous text messaging. I remember, you know, um, I was hanging out with a couple of the women in my class and they would get random messages. They didn't know who the number was from and there was no name attached to it, but be some guy saying, hey, I want to have sex with you. I want, I want you to take my virginity and things like this. And, and you know, just an anonymous random number from some guy who had, who had gotten her number 
Um, and then, you know, a lot of women walking across campus would get followed by guys who were just, you know, interested in them and wanted to talk to them, but didn't really know how to do that, weren't taught how to actually um, express those emotions or were told that those types of emotions were really unhealthy and really sinful. Um, so there was this like, just unhealthy cauldron of sexual expression there. There was a lot of emotional abuse and physical abuse, actually, in, in any type of relationship. A lot of people getting married very, very young. Um, nothing inherently wrong with that. But um, but what I saw and I kind of what I felt as well, what the reason was, is because you, these kids, kids, right, these, these young adults, they want to have sex. And the only framework that they're allowed to have sex in is within a marriage. And so, you know, they get married at 16, 17, so they can have sex, um, you know, under the eyes of the Lord. And then also... Um, and then also they're not taught about any contraception. So there's a lot of like really early pregnancies as well. A lot of 17 year olds with a couple of kids, um, which again, nothing inherently wrong with that, but it, you know, when it's in the context of what I've kind of laid out here, I, I thought it, you know, it's probably a bit of a problem. So this was a big light bulb moment for me, spending a bit of time in that community. I spent two years there and I was like, well, people need to learn about sex education. People need to learn about their sexuality. They need to learn how to healthily express it. And that was the, the start of this whole journey. And so through that, you know, I, I transferred schools, did my, did my um, undergraduate degree in psychology, um, studied some philosophy. You know, I, I, in the process of this, I seriously injured my back as well. And so I was introduced to um, yoga and some spirituality stuff, which really helped me overcome my own sexual difficulties. Right? I was having, um, as a young, you know, young man, 19, 20, 21, was having some premature ejaculation stuff going on for me was really relying on alcohol as well. Um, it's probably a period of five years there where I didn't have sex sober. Every time I had sex, I was, you know, intoxicated. Um, so just like working through my own shit as well by being introduced to, um, introduced to yoga pretty much is like the, the thing I'll say, you know, I, I, um, I learned how to breathe. I learned how to slow my body down. I learned how to take care of myself. Um, I learned, you know, how to just be a bit more healthy in terms of my, um, in terms of my physicality and, and my nutrition and what I was putting into my body. And so because of that, I saw my own sex life improving and my own sexual experiences getting better. Um, and so I was like, all right, I've you know, got this desire to, to teach and to do something with regards to human sexuality and you know, do some education about it. But then I've also got this other um, experiential aspect, which is like, you know, through yoga, through, I was introduced to Tantra, sacred sexuality type practices. And I was like, well, like my sex is actually getting better by doing these things. And it was just a, the last 10 years has been a process of like integrating those two things. Of like, how do I teach about sexuality? Make sure it's, you know, referenced and evidence-based and it's accurate information and it's you know, scientifically validated. And then also how do I teach people literally, you know, how to you know hack their body, how to troubleshoot their body by doing certain practices, by you know by breathing, by stretching, by moving their body in certain ways, and um, yeah, the slow integration of those two fields, right? You could call them like the the um, academic space and and the scientific space versus the or in conjunction with the um, experiential, you know, uh, body based, maybe spiritual space as well, and and trying to just blend those two teachings together, um, and that's kind of what I do today. It took a while for me to get there. Um, different iterations. I taught yoga for a bit. I was doing counselling for a little bit, and I just found like the the coaching hat was the nicest 
um, and most conducive hat for me to draw on a bunch of these different modalities. Um, and so that's what I do now. I niche in men's sex coaching because my lived experience is as a cisgender heterosexual guy, mostly heterosexual guy. So that's, um, that's what I speak to is, is that audience as well. Um, I try and, I try and speak to the shit that I needed to hear about 10 years ago. That's what I try and, you know, try and talk to myself 10 years ago. And I, I think because my own experience as a young man is very similar to a lot of other men's experiences as young men, and even as older men, um, it resonates with, mm. with a lot of guys. So, um, so that's kind of my, my, my story, man, in, in as much of a nutshell as I can put it. Yeah, Cam, I really, um, I really respect a lot of what you're doing today. And I think, I think a lot of guys listening in will also be able to relate to you in many ways. And even some of the things you were saying now, I'm like, that, that reminds me of my day back at an all boys school. You know, I went to an all boys school from year seven to year eight. And just the way that we, I guess, viewed women was just very, I don't know how to put it, very like objective and non-emotional and like it lacked that sort of spiritual element. So Cam, do you want to just maybe explore a little bit on some of the... I guess some of the challenges that, that men are facing today in terms of interacting with women. Yeah, I think the like the most contemporary challenge, I suppose, um, and I get this from a lot of guys when I host groups of men, is there's this um, maybe it's an anxiety, maybe it's a fear of not knowing how to express their sexual desires. Right? There's there's a very strong narrative at the moment. Um, yeah, and some might say deservedly so, and I'm kind of you know, on the fence there with regards to you know, the you know, the Me Too movement, the the Times Up campaign, that sort of thing. Um, but a lot of men, because of that, are seeing you know, oh fuck, a lot of these like guys who we kind of looked up to, role models, people that are in positions of power, are expressing them themselves in a really unhealthy, almost abusive, sexual way, and we're like, oh god, now if I do anything. You know, if I express myself in any type of sexual way, I'm going to be labelled in that category of like the, the the abusive, creepy, sexual guy. Um, and I went through this, you know, myself when I was teaching yoga. I was very, very concerned about how I came across. You know, uh, yoga is uh, at least here in Perth was is and was uh, predominantly women in the in the classes and, and and female teachers as well. So I'd be a, the only male teacher. Um, in a in a yoga studio full of women, and I was very, um, you know, I was just very aware of not talking about sex, of not being that sexual guy, of not not bringing that element into into my practice. Even though I wanted to, because that's what I'm passionate about, I was like, okay, I'm just going to push that part of me over to the side and be inauthentic, right? Be be a little bit disingenuous because that's not what I, you know, that's really what I wanted to talk about. But I was, you know, stifling it. Um, and so kind of by virtue of doing that, I'm, I'm being that guy who's, you know, who is interested in sex, but is kind of subverting it a little bit and is not being open and honest about it. And so I noticed that, you know, I wasn't resonating with people. People weren't, you know, people weren't um, connecting to what I was saying because I was, I was putting a mask on what I, what I actually wanted to talk about. And so one of the things that I think is really important for, for men to really start stepping into that healthy way of, expressing their sexuality and for it to be um, received in a really positive way rather than in the way that they might think it is going to be received is to just own the fact that we are sexual beings, right? That men's 
sexuality exists and also that men's sexuality isn't inherently violent or isn't inherently aggressive or isn't inherently monstrous as some culture of warriors on the internet would like to say and male sexuality doesn't have to be and it isn't uh, in my opinion um it isn't that violation or violator energy. A lot of a lot of men kind of tend to think that that it is, and 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 women and people in general um, have this like mentality that well, male sexuality is this you know, penetrative, direct, um, you know, predator type energy. Um, and some some men express themselves that way, and um, and you know, and and that is a problem. You know? And and so when we when we start to then um, do sexuality work, or at least when I start to do sexuality work, I address that. I address that fear, that concern that a lot of guys have that are, are a bit afraid to voice of being that sexual creepy guy um, and say, look, well, how about we start owning that and you know, accepting the fact that you do have those sexual feelings, that you do have sexual desires, and that it's totally natural and okay to have those sexual feelings and desires. And then once you've accepted that fact, how do we then healthily express them? What's a more appropriate way to, to voice them? What's a more appropriate way to, to move that that through your body to actually kind of feel it rather than try and uh, subjugate it or push it down and, and try and forget about it. I think it's um, a famous quote from Carl Jung, which is, you know, what we resist persists. Right. And, um, and so if we, if we resist our sexual energy, we resist our sexuality, we say it's not there, pretend it's not something um, that we want to engage with. It's going to keep on bubbling up. And most times when we put a lid on something that's bubbling up, it'll, shoot out the sides right and it'll come out in a in an unhealthy expression um and i i often use the the analogy of like is that a banana in your pocket or are you just happy to see me and if it is you know if if it isn't a banana in your pocket and you actually are happy to see someone can you own that can you be like actually fuck i actually am pretty happy to see you know you're you you turn me on you're you're arousing to me i think you know what what way can you express that in a healthy appropriate way for the setting that you're in so that's like the biggest thing at the moment i suppose for a lot of men is like um is that fear of being labeled quote unquote that guy um Mm. and um and so a lot of the work that i do with men is just like accepting the fact that they're sexual beings and that their sexuality isn't inherently bad Mm, yeah so cam let's sort of uh delve into some of those forms of i guess what happens with guys when they suppress that sexual energy or that sexual expression I know that there's the, the most common outlet for most men, I, I'd imagine, is online pornography. So do you want to sort of explore a little bit on that topic and how that's really, I guess, damaging to, to men? Yeah, totally, man. So um, when we, or at least again, talking about from my own experience, talking from the guys that I've worked with, when we don't have an outlet to you know, express our sexual energy. And I use sexual energy there in like the most ambiguous way. You know, it's, it's, you know, creative energy. It's, it's yep. your, um, if you want to use the spiritual, it's, it's the, um, life force energy, your vital energy, whatever, whatever your language is for it. Right. But it's, it's, I kind of think of it as like this, your sexual energy. Think of like when you're working out, you're doing something physical, right? You're lifting weights, you're going for a run, you're doing something physical, doing some physical exercise. And someone who you find attractive kind of like walks by you and flashes you a smile, right? And you go, oh, whoa, like look at this beautiful, amazing human being that I'm super attracted to. I find, you know, really attractive and they've just kind of, you know, flashed me a smile. They've just kind of, you know, give give me a, a little engagement there. And you get that little burst of like, oh, fuck, I better, you know, 
little harder, lift a little stronger. I better run a little quicker. I better do the physical thing that I'm doing just a little bit harder. You know, you get that little burst. And that's for me, that's what I, that's what I call sexual energy. Right. And, and you can, you can expand that. You, you know, the, the trick to, to learning about sexual energy is knowing that it's not the, the thing that's in front of you. It's not the person that's in front of you or the porn that's in front of you or the stimulus that's in front of you, which triggers that sexual energy burst in you. That comes from within you, right? That, and you can tap into that whenever you want, right? When you're dancing, when you're playing sport, when you're praying, when you're meditating, when you're doing yoga, right? You, you have access to that. It's not dependent upon what's in front of you. Um, but a lot, of, a lot of men tend to think that their sexual arousal and their pleasure and that feeling of sexual energy in their body is dependent on that person that's in front of them or is dependent on the screen that's in front of them. Or, you know, I, I kind of call this, they, they outsource their pleasure to someone else, right. Or to something else, um, whatever, whatever's on screen or, or the, the person in front of them. And, um, it's sometimes called the indirect route of pleasure, right? You not only, you're not focusing on the pleasure that you're physically experiencing, you're focusing on the pleasure of the thing in front of you and sort of vicariously living through that person and experiencing pleasure mm-hmm. that way. Um, uh, there's a, a lovely woman called Betty Martin talks more about that. I highly recommend people check that out. Mm-hmm. Um, but so kind of what happens when we, um, when we, I guess, extrapolate on that, when we expand on that is like, well, if that's the mentality that a lot of guys have, then when they go to self-pleasure, when they go to masturbate, they will outsource that pleasure that they, that they want to feel to a screen or to, you know, even to a, to a image in their mind, a visualization, a fantasy that they'll, that they'll visualize. Um, and, you know, and they'll feel pleasure in their body based on what it is that's in front of them um, rather than, Rather than, you know, and, and a, lot of, a lot of guys, when I, when I talk to them about self-pleasuring, I encourage them to not have a, a stimulus in front of them, a third-party thing in front of them, and just focus on what it is they're feeling. And it can take a little while for them to actually feel aroused without watching porn, to feel aroused without visualizing or fantasizing about something, but to actually notice what it is they're feeling. And it's, it's just a, a, a shift to focus on your sensations rather than focusing on what's in front of you. Um, and so that's, that's at least in my way, like I'm not anti porn at all. Um, my, my opinion on porn is that it's a tool just like a, just like a vibrator is a tool, right. And, and we can use a tool intentionally. We can use a tool consciously with full awareness and be like, okay, I'm using this as a way to build my arousal. I'm using this as a way to facilitate my, a certain experience, you know, for example, um, Another, another example with porn is, you know, exploring a fantasy or exploring a fetish that you might have, which you don't have the capacity to explore in reality, right? You, 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 you want to explore it online first. Um, so using porn intentionally and, you know, and, and watching porn healthily uh, is, uh, there's another guy called Joseph Kramer who does an amazing work around this, um, using porn in a healthy way, um, but it's a tool, right? And just like we can use a tool, um, in a beneficial, positive way, we can also become reliant on that tool. We can also use it in an unhealthy, um, you know, and create a bit of a dependency on that tool. Right. So when uh, same thing with a vibrator, right. Uh, There's a lot of anecdotal evidence out there about women who use a vibrator very, very often, and then almost become reliant on having to use that vibrator to experience an orgasm, to experience pleasure. Um, And so there's a process of just starting to, 
reduce the amount of use that they um, have of that vibrator, similar to what I talked to men about with regards to the usage of porn. Um, you know, there's a, a rule of thumb that I often share, and this is just generic, is um, watch porn 20% of the time that you masturbate. So if you're going to watch porn, limit it to 20%. So that could be like, you know, if you're masturbating for an hour, if you're self-pleasuring for an hour, 20% of that hour, or if you're masturbating or, or self-pleasuring five times in one week, limiting porn to one time that week, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so just 20% of the overall time that you self-pleasure. And, um, and so this is like, you know, so we, we kind of set up how porn can kind of be a little bit detrimental when we become reliant on it, when it becomes the source of our arousal and we feel like it's, we feel it's hard or it's a struggle or it's impossible for us to get aroused without it. That's when it becomes a bit of a, um, that's when it becomes problematic, right? When we start relying on it and we have that dependency on it. Um, but then there's also ways we can start to, you know, still use it, but use it with a bit more intention. And, and that doesn't just happen overnight. It's a, it's a process, right? And, and hence the reason why people like myself exist, coaches exist, is to help coach you through that process of navigating what's healthy for you, what kind of doesn't feel real healthy for you, and how to shift from outsourcing your pleasure to something or someone else to really knowing that pleasure and your, your self-arousal comes from, comes from yourself, comes from within you. Um, so that's that's kind of the the problem and then the solution, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's really good stuff there, Cam. Um, so I sort of wanted to transition over into, and I'm not sure if you've had much personal experience with this, but it's um, something known as um, post-SSRI sexual dysfunction. I'm not sure if you've ever worked with, with clients who've had, you know, they've been on like antidepressants and now they're, they're actually suffering from, the opposite, which is like delayed ejaculation or diminished pleasure or zero orgasm. So do you want to share more experience in that realm? Yeah. So it's, um, it's pretty well documented in the literature that antidepressants have an adverse effect, predominantly adverse effect on, on sexual function. There is a small group of people where it has the opposite effect and can, can turn them in, um, into hypersexual uh, experiences where they their libido goes up and their sex drive goes up, but it's only a very small percentage. Um, so predominantly, the antidepressants usually have that inhibitory um, or inhibition effect on on sexuality. Um, and so, you know, uh, if if they're coming off antidepressants and that's still you know persisting, then you know, we can kind of look at uh, you. Know, we could look at chemicals if that's, you know, and that'd be your neurotransmitter type things and chemicals in the brain, which is probably more your warehouse than it is mine. Um, but if we're looking at like building up experiences again, you know, it's, it's first bringing awareness, right? Some people don't necessarily realize that it's the antidepressants that are maybe having that effect. So it's like first, you know, bring that to their awareness just through some psychoeducation um, and then starting to like go, okay, look, Firstly, your your sexuality is going to change over time, and you know it's like just starting to maybe debunk or normalize fluctuations in our sexuality. Like that's the first thing. Like it's okay to to not have a high sex drive, right? Like it, it's not necessarily a bad thing. But if you you know if you want to experience more of a sex drive and it's distressing to you because you're not able to, then it's like okay, well, cool. Let's let's work on that. What can we do to to work on that? Do you need to stop taking the antidepressants or do you need to change your medication, that sort of thing? But then it's also like, all right, well, what can we do then to, to build pleasure? What, we can, what can we do to build arousal? What can we do to, you know, um, to, and again, people like 
the the way that they experienced sex and the way that they were sexual i get this a lot particularly with like older men who are trying to have sex the way that they did when they were younger right and they they want their erections to come like that they want to be able to maintain an erection yeah and it's like well your body changes over time and you know and similarly your body can change or your your um your biology can change through through um antidepressants or through any type of medication it's like you know, before you get to there um let's think about like well what can you what can you do now what's what's pleasurable for you now and 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 you know maybe it takes you a little bit longer to get an erection or it's a little bit more um there's a bit more fluctuation in the firmness of your erection does that necessarily mean that you can't experience the same amount of pleasure that you did before in my opinion no there's still ways that you can be sexual there's still ways that you can be pleasurable so it's just kind of opening up the that box that we tend to put our sexual experience in, right? Sex has to look a certain way. Sex needs to have an erection. Sex needs to have an ejaculation. Sex needs to have an orgasm. All these, um, again, similar to that religious dogma I was talking about before, right? We also have this, um, let's call it, um, let's call it, um, what's the, uh, what's the opposite of religious if you're um, living in a, um, non-religious um society i forget the word escapes me but it's like it's still dogma right it's still we we still put expectation on our experience and it needs to and should should look a certain way and and all this sort of expectation so it's like okay let's let's crack open that and let's say well let's focus on pleasure what is it that you find pleasurable in this moment and what can we do to build on that you know and um and it just gives it just gives people an opportunity to broaden their spectrum of sexual experiences, and 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 like that's the that's kind of the the experiential coaching kind of level. But then there's also, um, of course, you know, changing medications. There's things that you'd want to do with regards to your serotonin, dopamine as well, testosterone, all these things that link into sexual experiences, which we've talked about before, um, which would be important to look at as well mm. you know we, especially if we're looking at like the if we're looking at the therapeutic model or the coaching model of um of sexuality and and um and coaching we'd be like looking from a biopsychosocial point of view right we're looking at biology what's going on internally for you what's going on for you with your neurotransmitters with your hormones your endocrine system that sort of stuff but then we're also looking at like your your psychology what's your mental health like at the moment you know not only do you know antidepressants have that effect on you know inhibiting sex drive but depression and anxiety itself also inhibits sex drive and sexuality as well um so it's like okay well what's your mental health like at the moment is there some things, things we can do on that psychological kind of point of view that um again just allow for that expansiveness or openness with regards to your sexual experiences and then a sociological point of view as well right like that's where we talk about those narratives and what sex mm. should and shouldn't look like and and where do those messages come from they can come from religion society um they can come from our family as well and even just from us from our peers mm. so so it, it's important to approach different levels i think yeah, and it's and it's good that you're obviously acknowledging the fact that there are so many components to like a man's sex drive, and I guess you know as you mentioned, there might be various stresses and identifying that and then working through that. So I'm I'm sort of curious to know a little bit about your personal experience working with clients, and maybe let's let's hear you share one of your most profound sort of success stories because I'm curious to know like how 
dramatically you've impacted a man's life because this entire space that we're talking about right now is extremely, for a lot of guys, it's a very, very sensitive topic and it's a very difficult one for them to talk about because, again, like you said before, like that, you know, the way the media and things um, portrays male sexuality is is very different to how it is in reality. So do you want to share a little bit about your, like, personal experience? I want to hear more about how you've helped men. So the the biggest successes for me, I suppose, and again, this is like not saying that other successes are lesser, but the, the biggest like things for me when I see the guys that I work with is the guys that are in relationships and that like, and their relationship is suffering because their sex life is suffering, right? Because their sex life is, for want of a better word, shit, you know, and um and, you know, it's not only men that have these ideas about how their sex should look like. Um, their partners, their their um, wives, their girlfriends, their boyfriends, their partners, all, they have the same stories around what, what their man, what this guy should look like when he's in the bedroom or when he's expressing his sexuality. So the biggest success stories, at least in my, you know, the things that hit, hit me here because I'm in a relationship, right, um, is when guys share with me that they've, you know, they've done some work on themselves and this is kind of the way that I frame coaching as well as like you do some work on yourself first, you, you overcome your own narratives, you rewrite your own story, you experience things by yourself first. And then you take that into your partnership. You then do what I, I kind of frame this as what's called sexual leadership, right? You, you lead by example, you lead by showing vulnerability, you lead by opening up and, and, and kind of wearing your heart on your sleeve a little bit and being, um, yeah, just being being vulnerable is, is the best word I can kind of share from here. Um, and and these guys, you know, teach their partners something, you know, about their about their own sexuality. They teach their partners something about you know um, male sexuality. They challenge that kind of opinion about men's experiences of sex, and the. And, and the, the sex life starts to blossom. It starts to open up again because they're able to communicate more, right? They're able to actually normalize conversations about sex. They're able to uh, to take expectation off the table when it comes to those sexual experiences. Sex doesn't have to look a certain way and be monotonous and be linear. There's, um, there's a lot more freedom to express each other's sexuality with one another. Um, and so that's the, that's like the, the, the biggest success stories for me, I suppose, is, is like when guys, when guys, you know, take charge, uh, I guess for want of a better word, but they take charge and not that, uh, that assertive dominant kind of way. They take charge of being like, okay, fuck, I've got to do some work here. And by doing the work on myself, I'm then going to share that and invite my partner into that same space. And then we're going to blossom and grow and, and, you know, encourage each other to explore together. Um, so it's like just that fostering of curiosity, that fostering of, um, I like to say spontaneity as well, which is like your creativity and your flexibility, your, you know, your, your capacity to, to just kind of like um, roll with the punches and, and shift and, and change and acknowledge boundaries and talk about what it is that you, you find arousing, ask your partner the same things. Um, and, and, you know, and we know that when the sex gets better in a relationship, the overall relationship satisfaction gets better as well, right? That's been empirically studied, but it's also very easy to observe um, on just a superficial level. If you're having good sex with your partner, that's probably going to improve your relationship with them. So, mm. um, so for, for me, when I'm able to like help guys get to that point of like leading by example, leading by vulnerability, being that sexual leader, um, 
in the way that I've kind of defined it, then um, yeah, their sex life starts to blossom and their relationship starts to improve. And, and, you know, I'm a big believer in, in the way that you like to, to get that full spectrum from what I've been talking about, the way that you wank, right. The way that you masturbate, it's the way that you have sex. It's the way that you fuck and the way that you have sex and the way that you fuck is the way that you live life, man. It's the way that you engage with the world around you. And that's not, you know, um, a chronological order. It's they all interact with one another, right? If you want to have better sex and, you know, um, and fuck better, then, you know, do some things that are really passionate for you in your life. Right. And, and bring that passion into the bedroom and vice versa. If you want to be more passionate out in, out in the world, bring some of that passion into the bedroom and watch yourself get, you know, get um, lit up by that and then take that out into, out into the real world. And, mm. and, um, and yeah, so there's this like really beautiful synergistic relationship between like the way that you live, the way that you self-pleasure and the way that you have sex with your partner. Um, and so as soon as you start working on one and it starts to blossom and it starts to open up, you'll see it pop up and ripple out into other areas of your life. And that's, for me, that's one of the, the, the biggest um, success stories is when guys are able to do that. Yeah, look, what you've mentioned there, Cam, is definitely like I can definitely relate in that regard in terms of like um, the way you go, you know, the way you do one thing is how you do everything. So like what you mentioned in regards to like directing that energy and that focus and that passion from your work, let's say you're having a good week at work or whatever and you're kicking goals, you're meeting your KPIs, but then, you know, that that you can bring that into that relationship and then it, use that to fuel you and give you that social pride and that, and that reward. And I've definitely noticed that myself, like in terms of, um, you know, weeks when I felt really good and across the board, like, you know, family wise, social wise, um, business wise, you know, if I'm ticking all those boxes, I'm, I'm really primed and I'm really feeling like I'm feeling strong and really charged. And I want to, it then becomes a pro, a very strong, like pro creative energy. That's like, Right, because you're in a good place, the body, the man, like the, the body wants to give out. It's like you cannot pour from from an empty cup, and I'm sure you've used that analogy many times. Um, but I sort of yeah, want to want to dive down the rabbit hole of like um, maybe how we can as men really harness if we do have to suppress that sexual energy. How can we then channel it, and how do we? you know, how do we hold on to it and then channel it into different areas? Mm, yeah. Well, I, the first thing I'll say there is like, it's important to recognize that like all the, all the baggage that we have, all, all our, um, all our stories, all of our narratives, all of the messages that we have about ourselves, about life, about our partners doesn't just get left at the door of the bedroom. And then we just have you know, a sexual encounter we bring all of that shit, all of that stuff with us when we are being sexual with our partner. Um, and so to, to kind of piggyback your analogy, then if you're having a fucking good week, right. And, and you're getting all this positive reinforcement, you're getting all this like amazing, you get, you're celebrating your wins, you know, you're kicking goals. Then you bring that into your, into your sex, right. You bring that not only into your sex with a partner, but into your sex with yourself. But mm-hmm. right? if you're feeling on top of the world, when you sell pleasure, when you masturbate, it's, you're, you're going to experience that when you're, when you're being sexual for the most part anyway. Um, mm. But also the flip side of that coin is true as well. If you've had a shit week and, um, and, and you've been berated at work or you've got into an argument with someone, you know, you, you also bring that into the bedroom. You also bring that into your sexual experiences as well. Um, and, and oftentimes because 
you've had that, um, there's that anxiety or there's that stress or there's that discomfort or whatever it is. Oftentimes that pushes sex and pleasure down that list of priorities. And you actually, I guess this from my experience anyway, you, I don't want to necessarily be sexual if I'm, if I've had a shit week at work, right? If I'm having a shit week in general, I'm like the last thing I want to do is be sexual. Um, cause it really starts to inhibit my, my arousal, my, and my desire for pleasure. Yep. Um, so it's important to like recognize that it's like you're, you know, you're very much influenced by the things that go around you. You, you bring that into your, into your sexual experiences. Um, and so, and so like the, the, um, to answer you, then your question transition to that, the, the kind of reverse is true as well. Like if you've had like a really amazing uplifting sexual experience with your partner or by yourself, you've just kind of like rocked an amazing self-pleasure practice you can get charged up by that, right? You can get, you can fill your cup up by that and you can go out and do something after that, which is, which you're going to feel fucking good. Like it feels good to feel pleasure in your body, right? It, it, it lights you up. Um, but also if the, the reverse of that is true as well, which is like, if you've just had a really uncomfortable, shitty sexual experience, right? If you've just, um, you know, if you've like, if you've suffered from premature ejaculation, for example, if, if you've, you've had a really, um, hard time getting an erection and your partner and you've gotten into a fight with your partner and then there's, you know, a lot of tension or, or something around that. And, or if you've like just kind of, you know, un, unawarely or unconsciously just kind of jacked off to porn and just gone through the motions and it's just, you know, just kind of there, then you, you'll carry that into, you know, you don't feel, you don't feel enlivened by that. You don't feel energized by that. You, you kind of feel a bit deflated. You feel a bit fucked up as you're like, Oh, that was not good. Or, you know, I feel guilty or shameful afterwards. And so you'll carry that, into what it is that you're doing for the rest of the day or the rest of the night or, you know, oftentimes the rest of the week, you know, I, I find that a, that a um, really amazing sexual experience can lift me up for the, for the remainder of that week. Or if I just, you know, go through the motions and just jerk off, then I, I feel a bit deflated and a bit depleted for the rest of the week. So mm. there's this really um, uh, influential relationship between, you know, our sex life not only alone, but also with a partner and like our life in general, I think they're very interrelated. Um, so if we're like, if we're resisting our sex or if we're resisting any type of sexual experiences, then, um, you know, again, kind of similar to like having a shitty sexual experience. It's you, you're not able to then bring that into your, your daily life, right? You're not able to, to, uh, and again, from my own personal experience, like I don't feel very, passionate about things in life. I don't feel very uh, motivated to go and do things if I'm not engaging with my, with my pleasure, with my body, right? It's like a self practice you know, in terms of like, if, you, if you're not going to the gym or if you're not working out regularly, then you kind of feel a little bit deflated in your body. You kind of feel a little bit lethargic. I feel it's exactly the same way with self pleasure and you know, same with meditation or a spiritual practice as well. If you're not doing something regularly, um, if you're not engaging with that practice regularly, then you know, things start to slip. You start to, you know, maybe your mindfulness starts to slip. Maybe your awareness starts to go a little bit as well. Um, because it's a thing that you need to keep on engaging with. You know, it's a, it's a personal practice. Um, and so I feel the same way about self-pleasuring as well. If you're not doing a regular self-pleasuring practice, then, um, then you're doing yourself a, a disservice, right? In terms of showing up in the world because you, you're not engaging with your pleasure. You're not engaging with your senses. It's a very sensory experience, right? You're not waking up the body, waking up your hands, waking up your cock. Um, you're not engaging with, you know, this 
these systems of your body, the, the endocrine system, the reproductive system, all these areas of your body as well, which uh, are integral to our, to our existence really. Um, mm. And so, you know, by, by squashing all that, by resisting it, by, by, by pretending it's not there, by pretending it's something else or having an unhealthy relationship with it, you're impacting, at least in my mind, negatively the way that you show up in the, in the world around you, the way you show up and relate to the people in your life. Right? We, we, we interact with, it, with, with a whole bunch of different people, right? We're from, from family members to religious authorities to co-workers to children to, um, to elders, and our sexual self, our sexuality informs the way that we interact with each of those different people, right? Our, our relationships with those people, whether we are aware of it or not, or whether we want to acknowledge it or not, is almost dictated by or is informed by how we self-identify sexually, right? Um, you can think of you know, um, family dynamics, sexual family dynamics. You can think of you know um, a, a partner, a romantic partner, the way that you you know, um, feel sexually towards them, you know, the way that you're not supposed to express yourself sexually if you're around a, a, um, a religious authority, for example. So the way that we, we understand and are aware of our sexual self is um, you know, impacts the way that we relate to others, regardless of who that other person is. It's an element of every relationship that we have. Um, so if you don't know about your sexuality or if you have like some guilt and fear and shame and... Um, and, and just a general lack of awareness about what it is that turns you on, what it is that your boundaries are, what it is that you, that you want to do, what your fantasies are, what your limitations are with regards to your sexual self. If you don't have a robust understanding of your sexual identity and your sexual self, then that's going to impact the way that you interact with other people because you're not going to know part of yourself that that's, that's informing um, how you relate to people. So, um, so yeah, by, by, by pressing it down, by squashing it down, by resisting it, you know, by, by not, not allowing yourself to be filled up by it, you, you, yeah, you detract from the way that you relate to others. You, you detract from the way that you control. And it has this really, at least in my mind, um, and if we've been doing it our whole lives, we don't notice it. But once we start uh, healthily relating to ourselves sexually, um, intimately, sensually, then watch the way that you relate to others improve. Mm. That's all I'll say. Yeah, really powerful stuff there, Cam. <clears throat> I also wanted to um, dive down the rabbit hole of, I guess, um, the sort of energy that people carry when they're, I guess, like, let's say the, the first example that comes to my mind is like, for example, uh, like a one-night stand or a particular, you know, what happens in, in the scenario where like, the opposite, like let's say the female is carrying a lot of negative energy or trauma or things that she still hasn't worked through. And then, I mean, it's impossible to quantify this, but does that energy transfer over to the, to the man? And does it, how, how does that work? Well, there's like a, a, a saying in the spiritual community, which is um, sex, S-E-X stands for sacred energy exchange. Mm. And you know, there's a little bit of, um, I guess a little bit of truth to that, I suppose, if we want to, if we want to talk about truth from like a observable scientific point of view, right? Like the similar to a conversation, right? Similar to just a, a, an interaction with someone on the streets, right? You can tell if it's a good interaction, right? You can tell if there's some chemistry, there's if you're vibing with another person, you can tell if they're disinterested, right? You, it, it's, it's observable, right? You can notice unless 
um, you know, maybe there's some social skills deficit or whatever it might be. Like it's pretty, um, it's usually pretty obvious if that person's in, engaged and, and enthusiastic and, and really wanting to, to participate in that interaction with you. And the same thing goes for sex. Although we tend to like overestimate and things kind of get a bit muddled and blurred because we have that heightened state of arousal, which is oftentimes an altered state. I often talk about erotically altered consciousness. And, and this is like kind of what happens when we go into those heightened states of arousal and pleasure, things start to become a bit blurry for us. So it's really important to have that communication, social skill set um, built up before we start, you know, interacting with people on that sexual level as well. Um, so, so that's like the first thing I'll say is like, yeah, we can, we can notice when people and, 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 you know, how do we react as well? When, when we see, so we're having a conversation with someone who's just kind of like disinterested, just kind of looking away, not engaged with us. How does that make you feel? Right? It makes you feel like, you know, if I, you know, uh, um, is, is what I'm saying not worth listening to? Like you know, it can bring up some self-worth issues or it can bring up some like resentment to that person as well. So we get affected by what our partner does, right? And, and vice versa, our partners or the people we're engaging with get affected by the way that we show up. And, and of course, there's always things that are incompatible and some people will just get you know, um, annoyed at certain types of personalities or whatever it is. But you know, And so that's happening in, in sex as well is we're getting influenced by the way our partner is showing up especially if guys, for example, are still outsourcing their pleasure to their partner in front of them, right? If their partner's not having a good time or, or not showing that they're having a good time, a lot of guys feel like there's something wrong with them. Mm-hmm. Right? And that kind of leads into a discussion um, or, or um, conversation around like you know, the pressure that a lot of men tend to put on their female partners, for example, to look like they're enjoying themselves, to have orgasms, to fake orgasms as well. Um, so that, you know, he can still feel validated in his pleasure because like I said, we tend to outsource our pleasure to what we're seeing in front of us. Mm. So, so all that is happening in a sexual experience, right? These stories, these, these influences, um, and these impacts that we're having on one another. Uh, if we're looking at like an energetic exchange then, like if we're, if we're thinking about, um, so I, I talk about this from a from a traditional Chinese medicine point of view, right? This is the way that I usually frame energy in in terms of sex. So we've got three, um, according to TCM, we've got three cauldrons in our body called dantian, right? And and we'll, we'll forget about the upper two cauldrons, the upper two energy centers. We'll we'll, we'll we'll focus on like the lower dantian, which is oftentimes called the emotional cauldron, right? and it's like around the navel, around the pelvis, around the pelvic floor, and it's where all of this heavy, dense quote unquote emotional baggage tends to fall down to and wow. and you know and it's and it and it because it's because it's quite heavy it vibrates at a really um uh really low frequency right because it's um because it's, it's, it's dense and and they call this jing in in traditional chinese medicine is this really heavy dense energy is jing which is our life energy right which is which is the things that makes life worth living pretty much is all that emotion and all that passion and all those other things that we experience um and so Jing is this really stagnant, heavy, dense energy that's quite hard to move. Um, similarly, emotion is quite hard to move. So, um, and when we're, when we're um, being sexual, when we're being aroused, you know, our body temperature heats up, but we also heat up energetically as well. And it starts to boil that cauldron of emotions, that cauldron of Jing. And as that, um, you know, we, and we know from chemistry, we know from, um, alchemy that when we, when we heat something up, it becomes more malleable, it becomes mm. starts to move. So it starts to become a bit more free flowing. Um, and so this gene then starts to, starts to start flowing through our body. It's the reason why, why according to TCM, 
why lots of emotions can come up for us when we're being sexual, right? That we maybe don't necessarily recognize in our day-to-day life when we start having sex or masturbating or doing something, lots of emotions can start popping up for us. Um, but also then we start to have this outward flow of jing, especially with our, as men with our reproductive fluids. So if we're ejaculating, right, jing, because it's this life force energy, according to traditional Chinese medicine, is connected to our, um, our, the fluids in our body that give us life, our blood, our cerebral spinal fluid, you know, and, and our reproductive fluids. And particularly because, you know, reproducing or procreating or, or you know, having a, having a child is quote unquote, the most creative thing that we can do is to create life. Then, um, the, the ejaculate or, you know, seminal fluid contains this like really highly concentrated amount of gene. And so when we ejaculate, we lose all of this gene, this gene gets taken with us and, and, it, and it gets taken out of our body. Um, which is this whole idea of like ejaculation being depleted um, because we're losing all of that, that gene creative life energy, but also because it's you know really dense and really heavy and it's all that emotional baggage stuff, we can use gene to um, and, and ejaculation as a tool to just kind of flush all that, all that shit out of us, all that stuff we've been holding on to, all those negative emotions, all the stuff that's been weighing us down. You know, we can use ejaculation as a tool to just kind of let go of all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, we can also use ejaculation as a tool to manifest as well because it is that creative life-giving energy, but it's about intention, really. Um, so what a lot of guys tend to do unknowingly is when they come home from a, from a um, shit day at work, for example, let's use that analogy again, they, um, you know, I'm not saying all guys do this, but you know, it's definitely something I've, I've observed, is they'll, they'll want to be sexual with their partner and they'll 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 have sex, right? They'll 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 be sexual, or they'll go and watch porn, and they'll go and masturbate, or whatever it is, and they'll ejaculate. And that ejaculation, they'll feel like there's a oh, there's a weight off their shoulders, like oh, thank God the day's over. Oh, thank God that's done. And it's kind of a release, right? And it feels like a relief. And what they're doing in that moment, energetically, is you know, releasing that gin, releasing that shit that's been weighing them down. And if they're doing that with a partner. You know, if they're just using their partner as a relief, as a way to let go of that that shit that's been you know weighing down that they've been holding onto, their partner's taking that on board, right? Mm-hmm. Their partner's taking that energy on board if that's what they're doing you know, unconsciously. Um, and so it's like important for women, particularly, to to be aware of that. For men as well, to be aware that that might be what they're doing um, to have some like energetic clearing tools and things like this. Um, but there's a similar thing happening when we're being sexual with a with a woman, right? Using that heterosexual example is. Um, and it's especially if there's an ejaculation involved, like I particularly um, speak about ejaculation here, because once that, um, once we've like unloaded, I'll use the not so delicate word of unloading that energy, um, whatever that energy is, right? It could be that positive manifesting energy, or it could be that that um, emotional baggage and stuff we're trying to get rid of. It's created a um, like a deficit or it's created a, a vacuum, right? We've kind of emptied our cup to use that cup analogy from Osho. You've emptied the cup, right? We've cleared it all out. Now it's like, okay, well, what's going back into the cup? What's being filled back up? Mm. And, you know, if we're, if we're energetically filling our cup back up, it's going to be, you know, whatever's in our immediate environment, right? Whatever's in our space in front of us. And so if our partner is, um, you know, is, 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 um, you know, 
also putting out that emotional baggage that, you know, you said the word trauma before is putting out that type of energy um, in that sexual encounter and is not not necessarily aware of it or is doing it you know, unintentionally or whatever it might be. And that's what's going back into back into us, right, is, is just more emotional baggage, just more energetic, heavy, stagnant, energetic stuff that we'll probably have to get rid of at a certain stage as well using ejaculation or some other type of cathartic express and release type um, analogy for for emptying the cup so you know there, there is this energetic exchange happening especially if there's an ejaculation involved but then also when there's not an ejaculation involved you can still share energy um and um and engage in that energy exchange without ejaculation just by you know crossing a skin barrier is like one you know huge way of starting to share share that energetic experience with another person so any type of penetration whether it's you penetrating her or him or them penetrating you you know there's that that crossing of that skin barrier is as a really potent way of tapping into another person's um energetic body and physical body as well because you you have to notice those things right and if you're doing it if you're just rushing for penetration if you're just rushing for for you know the goal, right? Every hole is a goal type of mentality. And you're just trying to get to that, that end goal. You, you, you're creating, you, there's going to be resistance there because, you know, it, it, it takes time to, to open up. It takes time to, to be allowed in, to be, to, to be invited and welcomed in. So you're creating these little energetic resistances and blockages kind of in that, in that space. So, so it's important to take things slow and to, and to speak about, you know, okay, what, why are we having sex? What's the intention for, for here? And, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily just be for the sake of what well, you could just cause you desire sex, right? That that's one reason, right? And we've, we've done heaps of surveys empirically in the academic space of like, why, why do you have sex, right? What's the reason you have sex? And there's like over 200 different discrete reasons why people have sex you know, and desire for sex is just one of those reasons, it's like talk about why you're wanting to have sex. Is it to connect, right? Is it to, um, is it to release that frustration, that anger in a, you know, in a, in a healthy way that, that both parties are agreeing to, is it you know, for revenge? You know, is it for, um, to, to end an argument? You know, what, what are the reasons you know, and what's the intention behind having sex? I think is like really, um, just the cornerstone of like creating that positive, sacred energy exchange rather than that kind of um, unwitting and unknowing exchange of energy that might be going on for you. Mm. Yeah. Some really, really useful things you've mentioned there, Cam. It's like in particular, it, it really reminds me to, I guess it always come back, comes back to like doing that inner work. It doesn't matter what our health goals are, but it's like always, you know, if you're deciding to enter into a relationship or you're currently in a relationship, like, making sure you work through the shit that's like both for both parties. Like if they've got baggage and things like that, that it needs to be worked through because it's just going to, you know, it's going to impact the relationship um, on a whole, but even like sexually now I'm starting to see the links. That's where it's starting to impact. Um, mm. So it's really interesting, man. One, one thing I wanted to talk about was um, this is from personal experience and it's, it's, I'm sure you've seen it often. It's um, being so sexually heightened and so sexually charged that I literally cannot communicate. Like I, I, I cannot talk. I feel, I literally feel like um, illiterate. So <laughs> there's been some funny, um, I say funny, they're quite interesting studies on like, um, so men, heterosexual men uh, interacting with like really conventionally attractive women and like the way that guys 
interact and and like the differences that happen when when they find someone who they you know who, who's attractive to them and the way that they change their the way that they interact with them and so things like you know uh, heightened risk taking for example like there's been this one with guys that did motocross or some sort of like physical exercise i think it was on bikes and they would like try and do the harder jumps they would try and do the you know so speaking fun. again that physical version <laughs> uh, of energy that you get when you know you find someone attractive but then there's also things of of guys like on phones as well like um talking to um like someone with a conventionally attractive voice as well, a woman, like a really beautiful central voice. And like these guys struggle to answer questions, right? Just, and there's uh, like, the, it's all um, qualitative. And so like one of the examples is this guy who forgot his own name, couldn't even get his own name out of him. Um, so like there's this, uh, you know, and it speaks to that, that, um, that effect, right. That a beautiful person, right. And, and in these examples, it was a, it was a beautiful woman, but a beautiful person can have on, 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 on anyone, right. On, on people that are just, um, you know, attracted to them. So, uh, so, so that's like a, um, a version of kind of what it is that you, you've just shared with me, man. And, yeah. and like the, the, I guess, like kind of with anything as well, the, the way to work on that is through practice. You know, it's like when you get to that heightened state of um, arousal, that heightened state of pleasure, can you do that by yourself first and foremost to get familiar with what it feels like to, to be aware of those sensations that happen in your body to notice like what goes on for you when you're in that heightened state? Can you spend more time in that heightened state by yourself and just learn like what's, what's going on? And then can you start to integrate that with a partner? You know, can you say, can you set up the space to be like, look, I've got this really heightened, um, this thing happens when I get into this really heightened state of pleasure. I'm just kind of not really able to communicate. Can we set up a, an arrangement here where, you know, when I'm in that space and I try and practice a little bit of communication, I try and practice, you know, asking for what I want or setting a boundary or, or whatever it is that you want to work on in those, um, in those moments. So, you know, having that conversation is, is again, conversation is key. That's a nice cliche saying, but it's like, can you, can you, can you speak into that and, and own it and be like, cool, this is actually something that happens to me. I'd like to do a bit of work on it. I can do some by myself, but it's actually the communication aspect that's, you know, needs working on. So is it, is there a possibility of us doing that together? Um, and then, and then setting aside, like, well, not, maybe not setting aside, but having little things that you can, that you can practice. So rather than just saying, okay, I'm just going to practice. It's like, well, all right, let's practice this specific thing. I'm going to, I'm going to practice asking for this one thing, or I'm going to practice um, voicing this particular boundary. Or I'm going to practice um, expressing and just vocalizing the pleasure that I'm feeling in that moment, just allowing myself to, to whatever's coming up for me, come up. And, um, and yeah, so being intentional with your practice as well, rather than just saying, oh, I'm just going to practice. It's like, well, I'm going to practice this particular exercise, um, or we're going to play this particular game, you know, and, um, a, a game that I really like to share with people is it's called the yes, no, maybe list. And it's all about, you know, it's just like a whole list of sexual activities and sexual, um, experiences and ways that you can engage with your partner. And the idea is, you know, have a conversation with your partner, go down the list one at a time with each other and say, you know, you know, one of the things is like uh, biting my partner's nipples, you know, or, or having my nipples bitten or whatever it is. And it's like, are you a yes to that? Are you a no to that? Or are you a, you know, in the right circumstances, I could be, I could be into that and, and putting a maybe there, you know, so you could, you could practice that. For example, you could get into that really heightened state of arousal and, and start, you know, and then, and kind of have this list, you know, and, and say, Oh, I'm feeling really aroused right now. I could, I could definitely do that. It feels like really arousing to me. And then even, 
juxtapose that with doing that same list or that same practice, that same exercise when you're quote unquote sober, right? When you're not in that erotic altered consciousness um, and, and see what your answers are to those things. And you'll probably find there's a discrepancy in those answers because the, the things that we, um, that we don't really feel super into when we're, you know, just not aroused um, tend to become things that we really want to try when we're in that erotically altered consciousness, when we are in that heightened state of arousal. We actually lose a lot of inhibition when it comes yeah. to um, sexual experiences when we're already in the moment, which is also another thing um, to be aware of when you're talking about boundaries and consent and things like that as well, is like set those boundaries when you're quote unquote sober, right? It's the same thing with taking drugs or alcohol. You know, you wouldn't ask a person to set a boundary when they're in that, you know, um, altered state of consciousness when they're drunk or when they're inebriated, you ask them when they're sober, right? And it's the same thing with sex is you, 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 you set the boundaries, you set the limitations, um, and you set the agreements right before you enter into that, that erotically altered consciousness, when you, before you enter that, into that heightened state of pleasure, because things change in that moment. Um, and, um, you know, and so it's important to keep checking in, but but that conversation needs to be had to begin with, so that like you, know, you can set some boundaries when you're when you're sober, when you're kind of not aroused, because um, yeah. things can be a bit different when you're in that heightened state, and then you you may regret saying something, or you may regret crossing a boundary that you'd already previously wanted to set but was never voiced. So it's um it's, it's really important to to note that side of things as well. Yeah, like that, that's awesome. That's awesome. Now, obviously, I'm sharing from my my personal experience in terms of like, um, yeah, that logical side of my brain just shuts down. It's like I just, mm. <laughs> I can't think. So. I, I just even feel like I can't do basic things. It's like, you know, different heads switched on. But um, uh, Cam, I think um, I think that's pretty much it from from today. Was there anything else you wanted to explore in terms of, um, I guess maybe where you see the future, like how you see the future playing out in terms of, you know, men's sexual health? Uh, yeah, brother. I think like, um, I just think there's a, there's a really beautiful trend that at least I see in my little bubble of sex educators towards like holistic approaches to sexual health. You know, um, you know, we had a beautiful conversation the other week about, you know, integrating, um, adaptogens and, um, supplements and other ways to, to optimize your, your biological endocrinological, you know, sexual experience. But then there's also, you know, people doing, you know, the psychology point of view work, which is your more traditional psychotherapy and counseling, you know, talk therapy type stuff. Yeah, but then also approaching it from like that spiritual, um, tantric sacred sexuality point of view as well then also talking about it from like that physical point of view of like okay here's the physical breathing exercises and the um, stretches and the icing of your testicles that you can do right and all these all these beautiful modalities and disciplines kind of coming together and realizing well we're all trying to do the same thing here and um you know i i specialize in this and i know you specialize in that and let's, let's collaborate, you know, let's talk about the way that we can impact, you know, the, the same population of people that we're trying to help, um, and, and share wisdom with one another and share that teaching mm. with one another. So I think in terms of like where I see sex education as a broad <clears throat> umbrella, um, is, is that collaboration and that sharing of wisdom between modalities and, and becoming a bit more, um, you know, less, less, um, you know, uh, dichotomized of like Western medicine, sex therapy, camp here, and you know, t- 
tantric Taoist spiritual esoteric practices here um, and being no crossover. Uh, I think the, the future of like sexual health and sex education is like the slow integration of those two things and starting to notice, you know, in the, in the Western sense of the, in the Western sense of the word, like, well, all these tantric practices that we were doing thousands of years ago, you know, actually they work. There, there was a reason for doing them. And we're starting to recognize what that reason is from like a Western medical point of view as well. So mm. and, um, I think that's where we'll kind of start to head, but that, you know, is a whole conversation around funding to study this stuff. And, um, and, you know, the, the fact that a lot of sex therapy researchers don't get a lot of funding because people don't want to fund sex research because there's all this stigma around it. So I think that's, um, but I think that's the future is just like normalizing more conversations around sex, normalizing male sexuality, um, yeah, and it not being this negative, predatory, violatory, you know, energy, you know, male sexuality can be beautiful and expressive and, and way more diverse than we kind of give it credit for. So, um, I think that's kind of where, where we're heading and that's what I want to be a part of, man. That's the conversations that I want to start to continue having. And that's, uh, well, that's exactly what you're doing, man. And that's why, that's why you're on the show today. Cause I, I see you doing that. Um, and you're doing a really good job at that. And I'm really impressed by, you know, the message you're sending out there and really, I, I hope you, you, you help millions of men. And I know you're already starting with like programs and you're doing consulting and, um, I want to see you get that, that message out there. And, and that's why you're on my show, man, to help, to help spread that vision because it's, I really respect it. And then, you know, and I'm, I've heard other interviewers say this to you as well, but we need more of you. We need more people like you doing this thing because, um, it is, it's a, it's a hot, it's a very sensitive topic. Again, like I said, um, for, for a lot of guys and that, that male sexuality aspect is, it's really, mm, you know, a lot of guys place a lot of emphasis of their, their overall value and contribution to the world based on that. So it's really important that you're really, you know, you, you could be saving lives and I'm sure you have saved lives in terms of you know, guys in that realm. So, uh, Cam, if people want to learn more about your services and you know, how can they, how can they work with you? Yeah. So the two major ways you can get in touch with me and, and find my work is through my website, which is uh, cam dash Fraser.com. And then my Instagram page, which is just like a, a mini blog for myself. Um, lots of educational content is at the cam Fraser. Uh, those are the two easiest ways to get in touch with me, man. And, and to, to, to learn something, I guarantee if you go to my Instagram page and just click on any yeah. post, you'll, you'll learn something. That's my intention behind it. That's for sure. So um, for those listening in, I'll be linking all of Cam's socials down below. Um, and yeah, I just want to say a massive thanks for coming on the show, Cam. It's been a, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thanks, man. Thank you for, for having a platform to have these conversations, man. It's, um, yeah, it's really an honor and a privilege. So thank you. Awesome, man. Cheers. Thank you, everyone, for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.